0: So not too long ago, uh, Tom and I are sitting in his office. We're talking about the conference. I'm not paying a whole lot of attention. And he says, hey, I want you to give a talk on sexuality. I said, okay. Yeah, help us to understand transgenderism, hormone therapy, sex reassignment surgery. I said, okay. (laughs) What are you going to talk about? I'm just going to preach Micah 6.8. <laughs> You're just going to preach Micah 6.8. Uh, text, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. It's already got the three points of your outline. You want me to walk a minefield. Okay, I'll walk it. In all honesty, I've been very excited about addressing this particular topic because I think the, the sexual chaos going on around us is an opportunity for us to see what's going on beneath the surface. We can't deny the perversion going on everywhere, and it's somewhat distracting for us. Who could blame us when just recently in the news we heard of an 11-year-old boy dressed up like a girl taking off his clothes at a gay bar in New York while men threw dollar bills at him? It's the kind of thing that's distracting, but it's the kind of thing that begs the question, what is driving all of this sexual rebellion that we see? My answer to that question and the point of my talk is this. Our current sexual perversion is the fruit of a false religion. Our current sexual perversion is the fruit of a false religion. And it's very important that we see this point. If we miss this point, we're going to muddle this whole thing up. We're, we're going to look at the, 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 the sexual immorality around us and say, how could they? I can't believe it. I've, I've not done anything like that before, which is not a Christian response. We're good Calvinists here. We believe in total depravity. The other danger is that we'll look at all that's going on, but not understanding what's driving it. We're going to try to cozy up to some of the principles underneath all of this thing in order to gain friendship, thinking that somehow if, if we buy into some of their ideology, then we can help them out of their situation. But we can't. This false religion worships the creature rather than the creator. Our sexually immoral culture, then, is not merely a prodigal son slipping up in a moment of rebellion, soon to come back to his senses. You see, in that setup, he still has a senses to come back to. What we're seeing in our sexually immoral culture is just the opposite of that. We're seeing a, a sexual manifestation of a deep, systematic ideology. It's going where we would expect it to go. I want to talk a little bit about what this ideology is. Ross Douthat, contributor to the New York Times just a few weeks ago, wrote an article in which he spoke of the return of paganism in America. He identifies paganism as the belief that divinity is fundamentally inside the world rather than outside it. That God or the gods or being are ultimately part of nature rather than an external creator. And that meaning and morality and metaphysical experience are to be sought in a full communion with the imminent world rather than a leap toward the transcendent. And Douth is not the only one to identify this way of thinking that's gaining acceptance in America. Peter Jones, a Presbyterian minister, has spoken of this paganism as well. He calls it oneism over against twoism. He says Christians were twoists there is a creator and there is the created. But the onest worldview makes no distinction. All is one. Jones said this at a recent Ligonier conference. The rising generation, the millennial generation, is the first generation of our modern era to receive a fully developed neo-pagan cosmology masquerading as the correct view of history and demanding to be inscribed in public policy. It is indeed a well-worked-out cosmology that is a worldview about the nature of existence, and it is thoroughly pagan. This paganism, as defined by Douthit and Jones, is the religious root of our sexual perversion. This oneness worldview is upon us, and it has flown under the radar of many Christians, especially when it comes to our sexually polluted moment. If we miss this undergirding belief structure, then we will fail to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. And here's the the really problematic part. If we miss this, we're going to fail to do justice while being told that we're doing justice. We're going to hate kindness by being rooted for that we love kindness. And we're going to walk proudly by being cheered that we are those walking humbly with God. Now, for a few qualifications up front. I am not saying that any person who identifies himself or herself along the LGBT spectrum is self-consciously pagan. Surely we can find a number of people that want to identify as LGBT that believe in a distinct creator. And I'm certainly not saying that those who deal with sexual lust, be it heterosexual or homosexual, are somehow outside of the Christian faith. There are Christians all over the place that struggle with all kinds of sexual lust, and then they do what Christians do, they repent of it. Neither am I saying that people that actually adhere to this worldview honestly believe it, because as we're going to see in Romans 1, it's by our unrighteousness that we, mankind, suppress the truth that we know and try to develop this other way of thinking. My point is simply what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. Grievous sexual sin is itself God's handing over of a people who have already turned from him to worship the creature rather than the creator. I want to read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. So please take a Bible and open there with me. I'm not going to do an exposition of this passage, but I want to read it because it serves as a a guiding light or as the background to this talk. If you're using the Bibles that are provided in the seats, you're going to find this passage of Scripture on page 939. Romans chapter 1. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen." who practice them. Romans 1 teaches us that sexual immorality is the fruit of creature worship. Taking these verses as a God, I want to consider the progress of our sexual perversion, the principles giving rise to this sexual perversion, and then what should Christians do about it. The progress of our sexual perversion has come about because of the work of sexual revolutionaries. These sexual revolutionaries had and have a goal. And their goal is not simply some vague notion of equality. I just heard a Christian leader apologizing to the LGBT community in behalf of Christians because Christians have not sought justice for them. Quite honestly, I believe that pastor is getting played. That's exactly how some really bad people driving all of this want him to feel. And by all of this, I don't simply mean the, the LGBT community or even the sexual perversion. I mean, really, everything we're trying to get at in this conference, there's some bad people driving all of that, and I believe he's getting played by them. They want Christians to think this is about justice and equality, but it's not. Take, for example, the Gay Liberation Manifesto of 1972. It said, equality is never going to be enough. What is needed is a total social revolution, a complete reordering of civilization, including society's most basic institution, the patriarchal society. That's their own words. 1972, along the same lines, there's Kate Millett, who was a leader in the second wave of feminism. She was a homosexual woman. She wrote books and held meetings in which the following call and response was offered. And Kate Millett's sister has testified to being in this meeting, and this is what was said. The leader said, why are we here today? And the crowd responded, to make revolution. What kind of revolution? The cultural revolution. And how do we make cultural revolution? By destroying the American family. How do we destroy the American family? By destroying the American patriarch. How do we destroy the patriarch? By taking away his power. How do we take away his power? By destroying monogamy. And how do we destroy monogamy? Listen to this. By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality. This Is the agenda. The goal of the sexual revolution was a complete leveling of authority. The adherents of the sexual revolution didn't really hate fathers. They hated the father. They hated hierarchy, order. They hated the way that God has structured the world. And this goal is often lost on Christians. In a recent talk on homosexuality, a very prominent Southern Baptist pastor was trying to help people to understand how to engage the LGBT community. This prominent pastor is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer. And I mentioned his name as a brother. I don't believe J.D. is denying the deity of Christ. And yet... This is what he said in that talk. Jesus representing churches must be known as friends of the LGBT community. Well, here's the problem with that. The day and age in which we live, there is a world of difference between being a friend of LGBT people and being known, churches being known as friends of the LGBT community. Let's readjust that just for a minute. Are we dealing with a community that is identifying themselves by sexual rebellion against God? Yes, we are. Well, here's another group. The white supremacist community. How would you feel if I said, a faithful church has to be known as friends of the white supremacist community? No. No, we don't. Do I need to love my white supremacist neighbor? Absolutely. Do I need to sit down, have some coffee, and call this one created in the image of God to repentance and faith in Christ? Absolutely. Can I take this one Christmas cookies? Absolutely. Like we do, our homosexual neighbors who live across the street from us, who we take stuff from our garden in my very home with my kids, and they come over and help us fix things. We love them. We care for them. But we can't say that churches have to be known as friends of the LGBT community. If you think I'm being too hard on him, it makes sense that recently after saying those things, he publicly called for the tearing down of all hierarchy. You see, there's an ideology there. There's an ideology. And, And I am genuinely concerned that Christians in America are being duped. We're, we're buying into that system and then trying to help them. I think so much of this is well-intentioned. There's, there's genuine love, but it's, it's a love without knowledge. Very often. We're in danger of adopting the operating principles of the world in order to gain friendship status from the world. And if we're going to genuinely love the world in this moment, we have to not care what they think about us. Well, not giving into any kind of pride, arrogance, or a holier-than-thou spirit, genuine love but knowing that we're coming with a message. We're coming with a message of the cross that is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's offensive if we are faithful to it. The progress of the sexual revolution, long with the goal of it, we need to consider the extent of it. You usually don't get this far in a society unless you have a well-worked-out system of ideas that's driving all of this. Notice, it's cultural. We just had a man compete in the Miss Universe beauty pageant. It's involved in athletics. A male wins gold in women's cycling. It impacts education. Drag Queen Story Hour now exists at multiple libraries in our nation, where they come in and read to the children. Our sexual confusion is political, with a Burgerfell having created more problems than we can count. It's financial. Recently, a biological male joined an all-woman's football team. And when the team found out that he was a man, they released him, only to have a jury rule that he now is owed $20,000 for having suffered discrimination. It's extreme with sexual transitioning going on, even among adolescents. A judge in Ohio recently took an adolescent female out of her home, took her away from the custody of her parents because her parents would not let her begin hormone therapy to try to become a man. A judge just did this. This has entered the religious realm. In mainline Protestantism, it's pervasive. And now it's coming home to roost right among those who are Reformed evangelicals with the recent Revoice conference this past year. It's deadly. The abortion carnage is related to our sexual perversion. The high suicide rates among those who identify as LGBT, this is not debatable. So I don't mention the extent of this to be a fear monger. The response to this is not, oh my goodness, hide your kids, pull down the shades, because there's all kinds of bad stuff going on out there. But I mention the progress because we have to wake up to what's going on underneath the surface. See, the Christians are in danger of imbibing these principles. So what are these principles, the underlying principles of our present sexual perversion? I believe there are many. Wish I had time to try to spell out more of them. But I want to give you three. The sexual perversion of our times is driven by the worship of a pagan god, the approval of a pagan law, and the cultivation of a pagan desire. First, our sexual perversion is fueled by the worship of a pagan God, namely the creature rather than the creator. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And thus far, Christians are good. We're, we're, we're very fine with that verse. Um, the unbelievers don't believe. They don't worship God. They don't honor God. They don't give thanks to God. That's the way that we think about unbelievers. But that's not all the apostle says. And he goes on in verse 24 to say, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. The unrighteous did not stop at atheism. They don't hunker down happily in their secularism, as, as we've even seen recently, the nuns. They're, they're non-religious. Not really. They're not really non-religious. We are in a not whether but which situation. It is not whether you will worship a god, but which god will you worship? There's no middle ground. There is no neutrality. And why should we see the progress of the sexual immorality in our culture as the fruit of this way of thinking? Well, I need to go no further than looking at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 25 and 26. The very next verses after addressing this creature worship, he says, For this reason God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. So, I mean, seriously, you give a talk like this and somebody wants to call me a homophobe. I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about the ideology underneath that leads people to hell. You cannot raise an entire generation on sayings like believe in yourself. You can you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. And then when the little boys grow up and they say, I want to be a woman. Say, oh, no, we didn't mean it. If you raise a generation to think that they are God, come to find out they grow up and really believe that they are. As I mentioned, especially on this point, this exalting of man, this stuff flies under the radar of the church. The church would reject this outright if someone walked up and claimed that man is God. I I, I trust that the church in America is solid on that point. But, you know, bad ideas don't always come knocking on the front door. Take, for example, The Greatest Showman, a recent popular movie, in which a lady with a beard, I know, I said lady with a beard, sings an anthem center stage at a circus called This Is Me. This is what she says. After having been excluded from a party because of her androgynous appearance, she says, look out because here I come, and I'm marching on to the beat. I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. And I know that I deserve your love, because there's nothing I'm not worthy of. you worthy to sit in God's seat? That's something. And I think many Christians hearing that song are prone to think that she's justified having been excluded rather than to think that she's propagating creature worship. Interestingly, the Revoice conference held just this last year, which was a gathering to empower LGBT Christians. At that conference, this very song was cited as a way for LGBT Christians to lament the suffering that they've received at the hands of the church for being LGBT. I want genuine freedom for those folks gathered at that conference. And this is an insidious ideology that's keeping them in captivity. I'd say contra the greatest showman kind of thing. We have our brother and pastor, Doug Wilson, out in Idaho, who's got a song of his own. It's even on the Internet. It's called Hold Your Peace. Doug gathers with friends out in an open field, and they're riffing off the Apostle Paul, who reminds us that God is the molder and we are the clay. And Doug and friends have clay pots that they're throwing in the air and then whacking with baseball bats while they sing, Hold Your Peace, You Rebellious Pot. The Lord is God, and you are not. <laughs> we need more hold your peace, unless this is me. Our sexual perversion is not only driven by the worship of a pagan god, but also the approval of a pagan law. Here again, it is not whether but which. It is not whether you will approve a law, but which law will you approve. Romans chapter 1, verse 32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree... Note that again. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice they did not merely neglect God's decree and then go about their business quietly. They they disapprove of God's standard and they approve of another standard. This is what we're dealing with. I, I don't want Christians to be caught off guard when you go out seeking to fulfill the Great Commission, and they say, who are you to tell me how to live? Who are you to tell me what to think, what to believe? You know, the reality that they do such is not really the new thing. The new thing is that Christians don't know what to say. They say, well, I mean, I know I'm supposed to evangelize, but I'm not sure what to say now that you've asked me that question. You know, there's a perfectly good answer to that question. I am a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And before he told me to come and tell you these things, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why I'm telling you this. That's why I'm someb- glad somebody told me this, because I've got all kinds of sexual perversion, too. But someone came to me with the authoritative message of Christ and told me, Hey, your law's wrong. God's law is true. Jesus has revealed the standard, and you don't measure up to it. Christ shed His blood so that you can be forgiven for all of your sin. What do you mean, what right do I have to be here? I, I tell you, i got every right to be here, man. You breathe in Jesus' air, with Jesus' lungs, oxygenating Jesus' blood. I love you, but we can't be duped by that play. It takes courage and submission to Christ as Lord to speak this way. And we're losing these things. We're losing these things. And again, it's subtle. You cannot raise a generation on Elsa's frozen anthem let it go, let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free and expect them to grow up and obey the law of Lord Jesus, much less tell somebody else to obey the law of Lord Jesus. And I know everybody just loves that song, so listen to me. <laughs> it's in our, we've got it in a drawer somewhere at our house, with my six kids. I'm just saying, when she gets to that part, like, watch the movie, just counsel that poor girl. When she gets to that part, counsel that girl. You would think our kids are getting trained for their certification in biblical counseling when that song comes on. Just pause it. And just say, what's going on with Elsa? What's the idols of the heart? Find the idols of the heart, replace it with a promise. (laughs) Don't let her rebel like that in your household without saying something about it. Okay. This replacement of God's standard with man's standard has left us terribly confused on two key fronts when it comes to our sexual immorality. Confusion about the law results in these two confusions, honor and shame. We're all screwed up on honor. We're all screwed up on shame. People will call what is honorable, shameful. They will call what is shameful, honorable. And the church isn't quite bought into all of that yet. So what the church is doing is is we're hedging. We're hedging on it. We just don't want that which is shameful to be too shameful. And we don't want that which is honorable to be too honorable. We're just trying to kind of smooth things out, make sure everybody gets a trophy, maybe at least a ribbon. But The question before us is, by what standard? By what standard is something shameful or honorable? And the answer is God's standard, not man's standard. We fail to relieve people of their shame, if we tell them what they're doing isn't shameful and we serve no one by not rendering honor where honor is due because we need to cultivate God's standard in the world on the honor end of things. The key text is Hebrews 13 4, which says let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. This is God's institution. Would you let somebody talk about your dad and mom that way? Honor your father and mother. You let somebody ridicule and make a mockery of God's sovereign institution that exists to, to declare His glory to a lost and dying world, of the love of Christ for the bride. We must honor our marriages. We must let the marriage bed be undefiled. What God has joined together, let not man separate. This hits a home for us and Christians. We, we need to rise up. Men, love your wives as Christ loves the church. You want to help with all of the sexual perversion? Start at home. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, respect your husbands. Honor and esteem them, submit to them in all things lawful, representing the church. On the shame end, Romans one twenty seven speaks of homosexual acts as men committing shameless acts with men. So you can't say something like, you know, don't 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 stigmatize sexual sin. The Bible stigmatizes sexual sin. It calls it a shameless act. And we have forgotten how to blush. Jeremiah 6.15 says, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. And listen to the outcome of these people who committed an abomination and didn't know how to blush. Jeremiah goes on, Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown. If you try to relieve someone of their shame, apart from them coming to Christ, you do not love them. Do you hear what's coming? And then when the conference like this, we're, we're trying to proclaim these things. And Christians, people are going to look at us and say, what we're doing is shameful when we're trying to, we're trying to hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. We need to be like the Apostle Paul. though he took no pleasure that he made the Corinthians grieve, he rejoiced that they were grieved into repenting. We've got to have the same kind of courage, brothers and sisters. Pagan God, pagan law, final undergirding principle of all of this sexual anarchy that we're seeing is the cultivation of a pagan desire. And what I mean by that is it's it's the cultivation of desire unhinged from objective truth. Don't tell me how to feel. You can tell me what to do. You, You maybe still tell me what to think. But do not touch my emotions or my affections. God's goodness, God's truth, God's beauty have nothing to do with the way my desire ought to be shaped. This is a pagan understanding of desire, and it's pervasive among us. This is one of the major areas that the Revoice Conference went wrong. Ron Balgo, one of the speakers, has written the following. I believe gay sex is sinful, and that the desire for gay sex, though not itself sinful, is a temptation. We see the problem with this. This isn't something something different. I mean, the Tenth Commandment tells me that I'm not only to take another man's wife, I'm not to want to take her. The desire itself is sinful. There's more and more talk in the Christian world about same-sex attraction, but notice that. Uh, Again, a play is being run on us. What is that? What is it? Same-sex attraction. Are we talking about like, Tom's my friend. Are we talking about like, hey man, I'm attracted to you, you're attracted to me, we're real buds, let's go out and, you know, live for Jesus in the world? No, that's not what we're talking about. The Apostle Paul doesn't, call, doesn't speak of, of a desire to engage in sexual activity with one of your same-sex as just simply some kind of same-sex attraction. He says in Romans: 124, "God gave them up in the lust of their hearts." In verse 26 of chapter one, Romans, he speaks of this kind of thing as dishonorable passions." Christians must reassert, then, in the face of all of this, a Christian understanding of desire. And here's the ticket the same way that the mind is to be trained, the same way that the hands are to be trained, the heart is to be trained. The heart is to be trained. And we have absolutely neglected this. Every last one of us. Our society has neglected this. John Dewey, in his pragmatic education, is not concerned with the Christian cultivation of the desire. Although... We are in a not whether but which situation. So he's very much concerned with the cultivation of a pagan desire. You see, you've got to understand this. We we have bought into the idea that we're secular, that we're that, that we're none. So all of our educational system, you know, we can teach how a how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly without any reference to the amazing mysterious, wonder-working God who makes a caterpillar turn into a butterfly. And that's not a neutral situation. That's a committed situation. Because now you have no appetite for the wonder of God. You have no ability to apprehend beauty and goodness. And now a whole society is trained. They're not even thinking that their hearts, that it's wrong if my heart thinks that something's ugly, and it's really beautiful, and it's wrong if I think something's beautiful when it's actually ugly. We've totally neglected this. C.S. Lewis speaks of this in his work, The Abolition of Man, and he tells of uh, the Green Book, this book that was supposed to be teaching an entirely different subject, but they tell the story of two children that walk up to a waterfall, and one of the children say, this is sublime. And the foolish response is that the child shouldn't have said, this is sublime, but only I have sublime feelings. Because there's no objective sublimity in the waterfall that calls forth feelings of sublimity. Your feelings are are unhinged from objective reality. They're just to fly about willy-nilly, go in whatever direction you want. So, my goodness, if we're raising sons... And a son says, I'm really attracted and interested in other boys. Okay. Did that change anything about our theology of total depravity? Fathers, does that come as a surprise to you? Son, sins enter the world, man. The same way we have a desire to yell at people or whatever else it is. Sins enter the world. Crucify that. Crucify that. Acknowledge it as sin. Confess it as sin. No, we're not throwing you out, saying you're some weirdo, and we don't understand what you're doing. We understand exactly what you're doing. And buddy, you can't do it. And so what are you going to do if a guy says, hey, I'm interested in sleeping with somebody that's not my wife? Buddy, we can understand. Sin's in the world. Kill it. Crucify it. Don't do it. Same thing. The heart. We must train our affections. This is one of the reasons we have such high levels of pornography use and sexual abuse. It's because we've trained the hands and the mind, but we have not trained a man to restrain his inappropriate, sinful passions. Colossians chapter 1 verse 5 says, "Put to death therefore what is earthly in you: sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So I know that there will be all kinds of people that highly object to what I just said. How dare he say someone who had an honest attraction and wasn't involved in the activity, how dare he say that they should crucify that desire? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. I want to conclude by answering the question, what should Christians do about all of this? Again, my claim is that our current sexual perversion is the fruit of a false religion, and we need to identify that worldview, that ideology, so that we're not duped. Sex reassignment surgery, 11-year-old boys dancing in drag bars, men competing in Miss Universe pageant, these things are sexual anarchy. What are we to do? Three exhortations. Number one, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Stay sharp. Watch for the softening of Christian foundations. Worship the creator. Uphold God's law. Ask always, by what standard? Crucify your sinful desires and call others to do the same. Number two, don't fear. Don't fear. It's going to take great courage from Christians to engage on this issue and on all of these issues that we're talking about at this conference. And, and I'm, I'm concerned because it seems, as Vodi just mentioned last night, that we've already found a lot of ways to disengage. We've already found a lot of ways to disengage. Why? Because we lack courage courage. We know the truth. We know people are stumbling to the slaughter, but you don't want to be a bigot or a homophobe or a racist. You just don't want to be it. We're not talking about outright compromise. We're not talking about just the church changing theology. We're just talking about the church being silent. It's not saying what we know The Lord Jesus Christ has told us to say. I want to encourage you with with this. In in the call not to fear but to be courageous, understand this. This worldview, this ideology, can't last. It can't last. The way of the transgressor is hard. The ways of God are good. God has a way of simply having this kind of thing just fall over. The whole system, the oneness system, this pagan ideology is like a drunken man on stilts about to fall over. So don't fear. Point out the truth. This is the third point. Advance with the good news. This is not a time to retreat. We have to advance. Advance knowing that we need a miracle from Jesus, that as we speak the truth in love, if the Holy Spirit doesn't make this arrow hit the target, then we're doomed. There's no way to go forward if Christ doesn't go with us. We need the kind of love that's a little crazy. The kind of love that comes to a rebellious people, tells the truth about them and is willing to suffer ridicule, mockery, and shame in order to bring a message of life. Is this not what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us? He came. He came. He wasn't received. He was a man of sorrows. He knew grief. He was made a mockery. And yet, like Him, we must go and seek and save the lost. We must speak the truth in love. And we really do need the good news to blow up all the silliness that's going on. So I have to close with this good news to any and all who are sexually polluted and confused. I don't care if you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Hear this. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus, the righteous, was sexually pure as snow, and he was flayed on a cross for wretched sinners just like you and me. He did this so that we might never know condemnation. Listen to me. I don't care what kind of sexual depravity you've been involved in. I don't care if you've had sex reassignment surgery, hormone therapy. I don't care if you've been a polygamist incestuous if you've been given to bestiality I don't care if you've sexually assaulted people in your past if you repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved your guilt will be gone your shame will be removed you'll be washed and made a son or daughter of God this is how shame is relieved This is how we come out from underneath of our burden. Bow to King Jesus. Call him Lord. You'll be saved. And I could guarantee you this. You won't go on happily in your sexual immorality. You won't go on identifying with that sexual immorality. Final thought for Christians. The fact that we presently many want to lessen the shame of certain kind of sinners who don't come to Christ and feel uncomfortable with the shame of other sinners, some of which I just mentioned, being entirely removed if they come to Christ. That points out just how badly we've been discipled by this ideology. So you want to do justice Love kindness and walk humbly with God. Brothers and sisters, no compromise. Preach Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are our God. We are not God. Your law is the standard, not our will. You've called us to love you with all of our hearts, not only our mind and our strength. Please come and help us. Give courage to your church. Empower us by your spirit. Strengthen us that When we leave this conference, we would go back and we would labor for the health of your church and the salvation of lost sinners. We look to you for these things, praying them in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.